fill in the blank at the end of this scenario for me. It's a beautiful sunny day outside. You have no work to do, nowhere to drive to, nothing to do but simply sit and enjoy the day. You're on your shaded front porch looking at the scenery, at the people walking by, listening to the birds sing, the trees in the wind. You're sitting in your favorite chair, laid back, relaxing, with a cup of blank in your hand. What is it? What is the drink that you're holding in your hand as you finish out that scenario? This may be one of the most divisive questions I could ask, isn't it? Some of you are thinking a cup of coffee. Some of you are thinking a glass of sweet iced tea. Some may be saying lemonade. Some may be saying Mountain Dew. And then you have those crazy people say water, right? When it comes simply to what we drink that we find most satisfying, we instantly become divided, right? We start setting up camps of, I know this person agrees with me, I know this one doesn't, and in a very similar way, though in a much more profound way, the words of Jesus that we saw last week where he said, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink, creates diverse responses among the people who are listening to him. But in a much different way, This claim of Jesus being the true satisfier goes far beyond our debate of what our favorite beverage is. This claim that Jesus makes, this invitation that he gives, has effects into our very souls and into every human being's eternity. Remember, Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He had a moment of teaching in the middle of the feast, right, where he he stands up and he explains how his healing of the paralytic on the Sabbath wasn't really breaking the law. They seem to be satisfied with that answer for now. But he also told them that he has been sent by someone, specifically God the Father, and he tells them also in a short time he's going back to the one who sent him. But now we come to the last day, and we saw the invitation Jesus gave last week on the last day of the feast, where he makes the invitation for anyone who is thirsty to come to him and drink. And those who drink of him, those who believe in him, will find that there are rivers of living water flowing in their hearts. A staggering claim. As we continue in this this morning, we're going to see that there's a division that's created by this invitation in two realms. First of all, within the general public, what we might call the crowd of people, there's division. But then we also see division show up in the midst of the Pharisees, but specifically in how the Pharisees relate to three different groups of people. How the Pharisees are relating to the officers that they sent to arrest Jesus, the Pharisees in their relationship to the crowd that we're going to look at first, and the Pharisees in relationship to one of their own in Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee himself. So let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. I'm going to include those three verses that we finished with last week that are the invitation Jesus gives, and we'll kind of finish out chapter 7 here. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at these divisions, these responses from the two different realms, from the crowd and from the Pharisees. So we have two different ones, all of them in response, though, to Jesus' words. Right? Jesus has spoken this invitation to come and drink. We're going to start with the general public, or what I call the confused crowd. We see them show up in verses 40 through 44. We see three different camps setting up within this general public, this confused crowd. The interesting thing, though, is all of them are circling elements of truth about who Jesus is. Even though none of them are putting all these pieces together, all of them are circling some sort of truth. Right? So let's go through these camps. The first camp is not an unfamiliar one in the Gospel of John. We see them in verse 40. They say, Jesus is the prophet. Right? Now, we have to remember that what they mean by this is Moses, back in Deuteronomy, said there was going to be another prophet like him to come. And as you go throughout the whole Old Testament, it wasn't any of those prophets, but there's a greater prophet, a kind of final prophet that is to come. And that's who Jesus really is. They're hitting on an element of truth here. But we also have to remember in the Gospel of John, we've seen this show up already. And what they expect from this kind of prophet is not what Jesus is doing. If you remember back when Jesus fed the 5,000, the response of that crowd said, this is the prophet. And what did they try to do with Jesus? They tried to force him to be crowned their king. So even though they're hitting on an element of truth, it's clear that They're not thinking on the same terms that Moses and Jesus was thinking. So Jesus is the prophet, but he's much different than what they were expecting. He's more than just someone speaking on behalf of God, someone that they want to actually be a king. But this leads us to our second group of people. We see them show up in verse 41. They say, this is the Christ. Now there's debate here. Are these people true believers by saying this? 
I mean, we know, though, right, from context and just studying Scripture that the Jewish culture didn't have the right mindset of who the Messiah was supposed to be, right? They had it all wrapped up in political realm. So we certainly know that they didn't have it full, a full picture of all of it. And when they say this term, this is the Christ, we don't really know what they're referring to. Have they actually understood Jesus for who he really is? Or are they just saying he, he, he fits this political leader that we want to have and take over Rome? And to make it even more complicated, what did John already tell us about people claiming Jesus is the Christ in the feast? They said, is someone else going to do more signs than what he is doing? So it seems like earlier in, the, in this chapter we saw the connection to the Christ is a connection to the signs that he's doing, which, if you remember, was a problem back in chapter 2. It said that many believed in Jesus because of the signs he was doing, but Jesus didn't believe their faith. Jesus didn't entrust himself over to them because their faith was not genuine because it was based on signs. So we see a mention of signs here, so it makes us wonder... Do they really have the right thing in mind? Are these really pe- people truly believing yet? And then to add even more to it, when we get to the next chapter in chapter 8, where we're still at the feast, we have this group of people. It says many believed in him, and then Jesus turns around and tells the same group of people that their father is the devil. So we're left with the question, of these: are these people truly believers? I tend to lean on the side of the debate to say they're not there yet. Though they may be hitting an element of truth, certainly Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. One thing that we've seen specifically clear so far in the Gospel of John is when John wants to make it known that someone has trusted in Jesus wholeheartedly, he says they believed in him. And we see no recognition of that, at least, in this passage. But like I said, nevertheless, they still have struck an element of truth, calling Jesus the Christ, which then leads us to the third group of people. This group has an objection to the claim of the second group. Right? They say this is the Christ, but the third group, kind of tracing back from last week, remember last week there was an objection that, well, we don't know where the Christ is going to come from, but we know where Jesus has come from. This third group in the crowd actually bases their objection more in Scripture, Right? They go back to the Old Testament and notice what they say in verse 41 and going into verse 42. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They know Jesus has come from Galilee, but the Old Testament was clear that the Messiah had some sort of deep connection to David and the town of Bethlehem. So surely, if Jesus is from Galilee and the Messiah is from Bethlehem, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Now, of course, we see the obvious problem with that, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If anyone had bothered to do their research, this argument would have unraveled quite quickly. But either nobody knows that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, or at least nobody is mentioning it at this point. So we're left with three camps within the crowd. But all of them circling truth, right? He is the prophet that was to come. He is the Messiah, and he was born in Bethlehem. It's just that none of these groups of people actually recognize that Jesus fits all the qualifications. It's like each of them have a piece of a puzzle, but they think their piece of the puzzle is the entire puzzle. 
They don't realize as they put the pieces together, there's a much more beautiful, more glorious puzzle that Jesus fits all of it. And in the midst of this division, some of them want to arrest Jesus. But again, as we've seen over and over, his hour has not yet come for him to go to the cross. So nobody is able to lay a hand on him. So that's the first group of division we see. Now we see a second group. We had the confused crowd. I call the next group the prideful Pharisees, which is no surprise for anyone who knows anything about the Pharisees. Again, within the Pharisees, we see three divisions made clear. They argue against the officers they sent to arrest Jesus. They argue against the crowd who we just looked at, and they argue against one of their own in Nicodemus. Here's the irony. The Jewish religious authorities of the Pharisees are divided, but in the whole midst of it, they are all rejecting truth. It's ironic that each camp of the crowd has a piece of the puzzle that they're circling around, but the Jewish leaders who are supposed to know Scripture even better have missed the puzzle altogether. Let's look at what they say first to the officers in verse 45, going in through verse 48. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? So the officers heard this invitation from Jesus, right? They were waiting to arrest him, and they hear Jesus say, If anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink, and you will receive rivers of living water. And the only response they can say is, No one has ever spoken like A very true statement. Even more true than they recognize, because they haven't been reading the entire Gospel of John. They just see this one instance. If we look through what we've seen just in the first seven chapters of the Gospel of John, let me give you some of the claims Jesus has already made. Jesus said, destroy the temple, and in three days he will raise it up. Jesus said, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He said that he is the son of God sent to save the world. He told the woman at the well, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He told them that he only works because the father is working. He told them that the father has given him as the son authority for life and authority for judgment. He said that John the Baptist and the father and scripture and Moses are all witnesses to him as the son. He said that he is the bread of life that makes people never hunger and never thirst again. He said that he is the one seeking the father's glory, meaning he has no falsehood in himself. He said that he is the one sent from God, the God they do not know, and he said he is going back to the Father where they cannot go. No one has ever spoken like this man. Because no one is like this man. Jesus truly is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, who has come to take away the sin of the world, and the one who offers himself as true drink for thirsty souls. Yet the Pharisees think that the officers are simply gullible. Right? They think they've been duped. They think they've been deceived, like the crowd. 
The Pharisees lift themselves up as the final authority. Did you catch what they said there to him? They said, if none of the Pharisees and none of the authorities have believed in this Jesus, do you really think you should be believing in him? You can certainly sense the arrogance here. And it continues in how they refer to their own Jewish people, the crowd. Right? The officers saw the response of this crowd. And even though the crowd was divided, the crowd and the officers saw some sort of significance in Jesus' words. But look at what the Pharisees think about the crowd. The crowd is circling truth, but look at what they say about them in verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Two things there. First, they say this crowd doesn't know the law, right? Of course they would say this. Anyone that doesn't agree with the Pharisees, right, who consider themselves the police of the law, anyone who doesn't agree with their interpretation and their beliefs about it, they must not know it. They must be ignorant of the law if they don't agree with us. But due to this ignorance that they think the crowd has, look at how far the Pharisees are willing to go. They say that these Jewish people in the crowd are cursed because of their lack of knowledge. Funny, isn't it? The crowd who supposedly doesn't know the law is closer to recognizing the one who fulfills the law when compared to the ones who have committed their lives to studying the law. The crowd who supposedly doesn't know the law is closer to recognizing the one who fulfills the law when compared to the ones who have spent their lives studying the law. But this is where the hardness of heart of the Pharisees has led them. So much to the point that not only do they argue against the crowd and the officers, they argue against one of their own Pharisees. Nicodemus chimes in at the end of this division. We know Nicodemus has already had a lengthy discussion with Jesus. Pretty much a huge chunk of chapter 3 was that discussion. And we know that he was catching elements of what Jesus was saying, but he didn't fully grasp it yet. He probably still hasn't yet here. Though we may see his faith change as we get deeper into the Gospel of John. But for now, he simply tries to use one of the traditions of the Pharisees. As he is one himself, he knows what they normally do, so he makes a case. He says, wouldn't it make sense for us to hear out what this Jesus is saying and see what he's doing before we rush to judgment about him? Right? It, it wouldn't be fair to judge Jesus and just dismiss him before doing our research. But again, the pride of the Pharisees rears its ugly head. Look at how they respond to him in verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They assume Nicodemus must be from Galilee like Jesus, that he must have some sort of bias towards Jesus if he really wants to give Jesus a fair hearing. Giving a hearing wasn't an abnormal thing back then, but the Pharisees' minds were so made up that they easily dismissed the idea already. They even go as far to tell Nicodemus, one of their own Pharisees, he needs to search the scriptures better. You know what's funny, though? They say, no prophet can come from Galilee. You should know the scriptures. A bit ironic. Even in the Old Testament scriptures, there are prophets from Galilee. Jonah 
was from Galilee. And in research, it, it seems that possibly even Nahum and Hosea were from Galilee. So it's kind of ironic. We have the Jewish leaders saying, search the scriptures. No prophet comes from Galilee when their own scriptures talk about prophets that come from Galilee. So not only are the Pharisees wrong in the fact that they don't recognize that Jesus has come from Bethlehem, as the scriptures say, they're wrong even in saying no prophet can come from Galilee because clearly the Old Testament says otherwise. Their arrogance is absolutely ridiculous at this point. This is like the MLB, the Major League Baseball, telling Nolan Ryan he doesn't deserve the Hall of Fame. This is like the Oscars telling Meryl Streep she can't act. Or it's like Walt Disney saying Mickey Mouse was a failure. Right? These are supposed to be the religious authorities, the ones who know the scriptures best. And here they are saying Jesus Christ cannot be the Christ. So we have these two groups. Each of them divided threefold. The confused crowd debating Jesus as the prophet, the Christ, and the Christ's connection to Bethlehem. All of them are true, though. But the Pharisees, their pride causes them to not only reject the truths that the crowd is debating, but they also tell the officers who are amazed by Jesus' words that they must be deceived. And they even reject this proposal from Nicodemus, calling him biased and ignorant of the scriptures. And all of this is stirred, all this division is stirred by Jesus saying, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. It's significant for us to realize Jesus' words create division. Not just in this culture, but even in our present culture. And that brings us to our second point for today, as we look at how people in our culture respond to Jesus in a similar way to these responses we see. We're going to go through three types of responses. Two of them are responses of unbelief, and one of them is a response of belief. I do two different unbelief responses because I think that's what we see in the passage today. We see a complete rejection by the Pharisees, and we see a confused crowd, both of which are in unbelief, but it looks two totally different ways. So first, let's look at the the obvious one, the unbelief that rejects. We see this in the Pharisees. They want absolutely nothing to do with any sort of worldview that disrupts their status quo. They have a quick answer for any potential belief that arises in people. And this rejection of truth is pretty common today as well, isn't it? We can see it in a variety of other religions. We can see it in people who don't want to affiliate with any religious system of beliefs. But what I want to narrow in on for a moment is it's particularly clear when we look at the claims of Jesus in comparison to how other religious systems respond to to those claims of Jesus. Let's take some other religious systems, for example. Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism... All of them would say Jesus was a prophet of some sort, but they would deny the claims that Jesus makes about himself. They would say his claim to be the Son of God was fabricated at a later date. They would say that his crucifixion and resurrection is a fable that was created by his followers. That it wasn't really part of Jesus' historical life. So there's a complete rejection 
of the claims about Jesus. But let's move on to another religion. Let's take Mormonism, for example. This system of belief claims that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die on the cross for our sins, but they would deny the reality of the Trinity. In fact, they would say there are many gods, that all human beings can become a god ourselves. So Jesus was just a god. In fact, the very well-known beginning of John's gospel would be tweaked by them. We read, the word was with God and the word was God. They would say what that text really means is, Jesus, the word, was a God. Or where Jesus later in John says, I and the Father are one, they would say, he only means there that they're one in their purpose together. Not that they're actually one in the fact that they're both God as part of the Trinity. Right? So while it's more subtle, there is elements of the claims that Jesus makes being utterly rejected still and having to be tweaked in order to fit this system of belief that they take from outside of Scripture. So we hear this and we're like, well, those are the obvious ones to recognize, right? This, this is obvious when people outrightly reject truth. But I just want to ask just for a moment, do we or anyone in the church ever do the same thing, not necessarily with the claims of Jesus, but with the commands of Jesus? When we hear Jesus say, go and make disciples, do we have anyone in churches that say, I'm going to quickly dismiss that and not really pursue it? Do we have people who hear Jesus' commands and are quick to reject it, even though they might agree with the claims Jesus says about who he is? I think we'll be surprised at how many people who claim the name of Jesus will show up on that final day and never be able to claim that they made one disciple. But, what about the second type? Let's go on to the unbelief that is confused. In our passage, this would be multiple groups of people. We have the crowd... Right, who's circling truths. We have the officers who say no one has ever spoken like this. And we have Nicodemus who says, I want to at least hear more about what this Jesus is doing and saying. What we see from this group is we have people that are willing and even excited at times to hear the teaching of Jesus. But what we also see, at least I think, we don't see any of them responding in the way that Jesus has told them to respond to his invitation. What did Jesus tell people to do? Come and drink. And John mentions nothing of anybody believing in him. John mentions nothing of people who are actually having their souls quenched by Jesus at this point in the text. Right? And I said, even as we get into chapter 8, we have people saying they do believe, and then Jesus tells them their father is the devil. So obviously even that belief is questionable. So we have this group of people who I think we could say have not yet had their thirsty souls quenched. Though, I would certainly say, we see seeds are being planted here much better than compared to the Pharisees. Right? We have a crowd saying Messiah. We have officers who, whose souls have at least been touched by what Jesus has said. 
And we have Nicodemus, who seems to be slowly working his way towards a path of belief. Can the same thing happen in our day and age today? Can we have people in church who can correctly identify who Jesus is? Or can we have people who hear the words of Jesus and are in awe of the words of Jesus, yet those people have not yet come and drank of Jesus yet? Is it possible that people can identify Jesus or be in awe of Jesus, but not yet have rivers of living water flowing in their hearts? I think this state of unbelief is real and often neglected in our minds when we think about church and people who claim to know Jesus. Now, I will admit, right, it is harder to discern this because we have external elements that look like true belief, right? That's why this text is so difficult. When people say this is the Christ, we want to say they're saved, surely. They're making a correct identification of Jesus, But remember, we also had it say that people believed in Jesus in chapter 2. And Jesus said, I don't trust your belief. Right? So it's hard for us to wrestle through because we have external claims that seem to fit belief. But then we have hearts that have not yet found satisfaction in Jesus. So I'm, I'm saying it's more difficult. We have to use much more discernment. It's not as easily to detect this in comparison to when we see the people like the Pharisees outrightly rejecting what Jesus was saying, all I want to bring this up for is the fact that we need to realize this exists. We need to recognize that we need to have awareness that this is real, that there are people that can make correct claims about Jesus, even be in awe of Jesus' words, but have not yet come to drink of Jesus. And you can probably anticipate the final type of response that we see to Jesus. I already told you it's one of belief, but More particularly, I want us to see that it's belief that comes and drinks. While I think we only see shadows of this type of belief in the passage from this morning, we have seen this actually play out so far in John's Gospel. Jesus' disciples have followed him, believed in him, and even recently in the text we've seen them say, we have nowhere else to go. You're the only one who has words of eternal life. We saw a man whose son was healed at a distance. And John tells us he believed, but not only him, but his whole household believed in Jesus. We have the woman at the well who hears about living water, responds to Jesus' invitation, and not only believes herself, but goes and tells everyone about how her soul has been quenched. And many people in Samaria come to believe in Jesus. You see, we see a drastic difference in those who have had their souls quenched versus those who haven't yet, whether it's rejecting truth or still confused by it. Those who truly believe in Jesus find that Jesus' invitation is actually real. That their thirsty soul is not only quenched now, but that the Spirit enters, and in Christ being in them, they have everlasting joy. Satisfaction that never ends in their hearts, as they now live for God's glory rather than their own. So the question before you this morning is, how are you responding to Jesus? Which group do you fit into? 
Do you reject the claims that he makes about himself in Scripture and you're simply sitting here this morning in church because it keeps a family member or one of your friends at bay? Or maybe you've wandered in or somebody's going to wander across this online and you admit that you have been hostile to the claims of Jesus. Or possibly you found yourself in the second camp of unbelief. That you're able to give all the truths about who Jesus is. That he was born in Bethlehem. That he lived a sinless life. That he is the Son of God. That he is the Word made flesh. That he did die on the cross for sins and was resurrected three days later. Or maybe you don't know any of those truths, but you felt some sort of awe and wonder at Jesus' invitation this morning to have your thirsty soul quenched. Whether you know all the right answers or simply felt the uniqueness of what Jesus is offering, perhaps you still haven't come and had your soul drink of him yet. That's what's being extended to you this morning. That your thirsty soul can be satisfied by Jesus, and you will never have to seek any joy in anything else in this world because Jesus is always more than enough. So if you're in one of those two camps, will you come and drink of Jesus today? But then for that last group, those who have truly believed, those whose hearts, as I'm reading all of this, are shouting amen in the depths of their souls as they hear Jesus describing Rivers of living water flowing from our hearts. You know this reality. You know this pleasure that Jesus is offering, this experience as you trust in Jesus. But I have a reminder for you this morning. Remember that the woman at the well went and told everyone else about her soul's thirst being quenched. Remember that the disciples spent the rest of their lives and even give their lives to share this news of Jesus, that his death and resurrection provide forgiveness for our sin and offers new life where our souls can forever have fullness of joy. We are to do the same thing. Our lives are to be devoted to pursuing God's glory by our own souls finding satisfaction in him, but also by us offering that satisfaction in Christ to other people. So as you seek to let other people know where their souls can find satisfaction, let me give you a few reminders, a few truths as we finish this morning that we see specifically from this passage. There's three of them. Number one, Jesus makes astounding claims. Jesus makes claims that nobody else in the history of the world could ever make. And he's right about what he says. If you truly believe, if you've truly found your soul quenched by him, you believe that he is right. That nowhere else can people find their thirsty soul quenched. Your responsibility is not to change those claims to make them more appealing to the world. The world is going to look and say that these claims are hateful and narrow-minded, but they're not hateful. Yet, Jesus did say that the road to believing in him is a narrow road. So remember that. It's not your responsibility to change the claims. Number two, these astounding claims that Jesus makes creates division. It's inevitable. Some people will reject it completely. 
Some will be confused by it and either remain in their unbelief or have seeds planted that will grow into belief. Others will gladly receive it and have their souls forever quenched. But remember that if much of the world hated and rejected Jesus, what else do you think they're going to do with you? For those of you who are in school, your classmates might mock you. At your jobs, co-workers may isolate you. When you're with family members who don't believe, some may abandon you. Division will happen. But the unbelief of others, thankfully, does not influence our soul's satisfaction any longer. Our souls do not find satisfaction in other people making them believe now. Our souls are satisfied by Christ and Him alone. And that's the only reason we tell others. And last, true belief is a soul that comes and drinks. As you share the gospel with those around you, we can't settle for less of calling belief what is really seen in this passage as confusion. Just because someone can articulate certain truths about Jesus, or just because someone had some sort of emotional experience in hearing Jesus' words, doesn't necessarily prove that their souls are drinking of Jesus. Right? It could mean they're on the path to drinking of Jesus, or it could mean they have actually been drinking of Jesus. It's hard for us to tell. We've already established that. But all I want to encourage you with is it's your role, your responsibility in your relationship with that person to over and over encourage them to have their soul quenched yet again by Jesus. To remind them that it's not about just knowing the right things to say, that it's not about just having an emotional experience, but their souls must be satisfied by Jesus. In fact... Isn't that our job all day, every day as believers in Jesus? That we are to remind believers even, other believers in Jesus, to point them back to the one who quenches their thirst? That over and over, whether it's someone you don't know or you do know, this is the message. Thirsty souls that can be quenched by Christ. So that's my invitation this morning to you. The same one that Jesus gave. If you're in unbelief, like the Pharisees or like those who were confused by all of this, come and drink of Jesus. If you found that you have come and drank of Jesus, I invite you then as a believer to return back to what Jesus promised. Rivers of living water flowing in your heart. Return to these rivers of Christ that are in your soul and find true joy that never ceases. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we, as we close our time together, may our souls be reminded of the truth of what Jesus says here. That if we're thirsty, he's the only one who can satisfy us. If there's anyone in here or listening online this morning that doesn't have their soul quenched by Jesus, 
we ask that you would draw them to Jesus. That they may experience the everlasting joy that comes in knowing him. And for those of us who do know Jesus, those who have had our souls quenched, we know how quickly, how often we can abandon that and try to be satisfied by something else. Remind us this morning that as we come to Jesus, we have the rivers of living water flowing in our heart as Christ is in us. We never have to try to find satisfaction in anything else. May we feel that satisfaction. May we understand it better as we go from this place and as we go in our lives. May we tell others this message that by Christ's death and resurrection, they too can have their thirsty souls find true joy. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.